0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our roundtable with analysis of the Farnborough International Airshow. But first, after an absolutely brutal and action-packed Farnborough International Airshow is Kevin Craven, who is the chief executive of ADS, uh, the company that represents British aerospace defense and security contractors. Uh, Kevin, congratulations on a successful Farm Bureau. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for stopping by the stand uh, during the week. It was great to see you in person, Vargo. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and we are a proud Farnborough International Air Show media partner and our coverage of Britain's leading air show is sponsored and was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS from your uh, standpoint uh, Kevin as the host of the How did it go from your perspective?
1: I think it was pretty good, actually. I'm really pleased with the visitor numbers. We're up to, I guess, probably 90,000 by the time the numbers come in for today. So that's really at the top end of our expectation. Uh, Exhibitors are excited. We've had uh, a huge amount of rebook for 2024 already. And we're having some exciting conversations around permanent stands, three exhibitors wanting to take both office space and ex- exhibition space on a permanent basis. So real strength of feeling that uh, this is the place to be, this is where
0: the important conversations take place, and you've got to have a place at the table. Um, I, uh, I agree with you. After not having been at such a venue, uh, in a couple of years, you just recognize the value of it. Really quickly, um, there was a lot going on at this show. Obviously, the British government makes it makes its announcements. We heard from Ben Wallace, certainly, on one of the most uh, important announcements regarding the Tempest program. Uh, there was the Aerospace Global Forum that was running in, in parallel to this on a daily basis. From, from your perspective as the ADS chief executive, that was going out there and engaging and talking to folks on a much broader level, broader than merely just commercial level, What were some of the most important takeaways from your perspective?
1: I think the other announcement I would point to would be the Jet Zero strategy launched by the British government with some ambitious targets. Uh, And alongside with that was the Aerospace Growth Partnership where industry and government come together to plan on how to execute on that strategy. Um, and that was a great, great pleasure because um, it was a rush to get it done in time for the show uh, and it's been hard herding the cats together to get that lined up but um, exciting sustainability targets for the UK still being the most ambitious government in terms of uh, hard targets and then commitments in terms of investments that will help us reach those targets so I'd point to that. I think Team Tempest uh, really exciting, and you know uh, we, we're going to see a huge amount of development around that with the impetus uh, on defence um, that's happened as a result of Ukraine. So uh, I, I think these projects uh, are are really important both
0: to the future of the show, but also to the future of the sector. You're an intermediary obviously between your membership companies as well as uh, governments around the world. You, you serve that function and I'm about to ask you about the International Council meeting that happened where all the major aerospace uh, and defense organizations meet at Farnborough. But from from your perspective, what's the balance to get this right? Because no sooner had that uh, uh, sustainability goal been set at, a lot of folks said, look, that's really going to be hard to achieve. We have to be reasonable. This is what we've been saying throughout the climate crisis. And here we sat with the two, among the two hottest days, and certainly one of them, the hottest day in British history. What's the trick to getting this right in terms of government industry partnership from your perspective?
1: I, I think it is commitment to holding the course. So we have to make structural changes to allow construction of SAF plants, the outputs of SAF to meet the UK's targets in 2030, uh, there's a great step. So the global production of sustainable aviation fuels will, apt- will need to be uh, multiplied by 100 times over the current size today in order to just meet the UK's 10% targets uh, for 2030. So so it's really challenging this. We've got to hold our nerve. We've got to continue investing for the next couple of decades in order to deliver these ambitious targets and against the backdrop of the economic downturns, uh, recovering from COVID. That's going to be tough for governments, going to be tough for industry, but we are seeing some of our organizations and companies taking the leadership and placing bets on hydrogen, placing bets on new propulsion systems and more efficient aero bodies that I think are really profound and will pay dividends. Uh, The leaders of those uh, races are going to make huge amounts of uh, market share
0: and orders. Let me ask you one more question. Every forum borough is an opportunity uh, to meet with your international counterparts. I know how excited Eric Fanning of the Aerospace Industries Association in the United States was to get back to regular order in those meetings, right? Zoom meetings are not good enough. What were some of the things um, that was, were discussed among the global organizations? Uh, because many of the challenges, for example, sustainability can only happen if there's global action on it. What were some of the things you guys were talking about?
1: So I think there were three uh, major items on the agenda. So first of all was, um, and that was probably underlined by ICAO, which is coming in in October. So airworthiness, certification, regulation, how do we work better together to enable that to happen faster uh, and easier? Um, Sustainability. Absolutely number one point in almost every conversation at Farnborough this year. Um, Interestingly, engagement with China and how that's going to work in the new geopolitical uh, challenges that we face uh, with conflicts uh, in uh, Europe for the first time in decades. uh, And how does that play out in an aerospace world? where um, you know we may see Chinese competitors arising over the next decade as well. So there were quite a few big themes that the international organizations discussed, uh, and we've all agreed to meet more in order to take these
0: lines forward. Kevin, thanks very much for joining us. Know that you're still busy even on the last day of the show and will be uh, so for a while longer. And I apologize for my throat, but I had so many uh, conversations with so many people nonstop over the past week that my, I'm losing my voice. Uh, look forward to having uh, you and members of your team back on over the coming weeks uh, to delve into different uh, topics that we'll be looking at. Thanks so very much.
1: My pleasure. And I'm looking looking forward to coming to the States to talk about Farnborough 24 very shortly.
0: And before we get to our roundtable, a reminder to check out our two weekly podcasts, Cabos Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space, and joining us now for our roundtable, Dr. Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Avlafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, uh, I would say in Washington, but ordinarily in Washington, and now in Pays Basque uh, in southern France. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's great to be here, Vagro. Thanks. Yeah, it's great. It's great to be here and very good to see you last week. Thank you.
2: Yeah, great hanging out with you at Farnborough last week. And uh, also just by way of gentle correction, País Vasco in northwestern Spain, northeastern Spain. So travel I, correction for me there too. I, I
0: I apologize for that. I thought you were guys who were in the southern uh southern France part of Pays Basque as opposed to the northern Spanish part of it, but at least you are in uh, a part uh of the world with tremendous food uh and one of uh one of the oldest uh, European uh cultures, actually. So uh thanks very much for joining us. And and if uh anybody hears any noise in the background, Ron is kind enough to join us from an airport um and and en, en route to uh, a family gathering. So everybody Thanks very much for joining us. Um, Ron, uh, start us off. I want to get to Farnborough takeaways in just a minute. But walk us through uh, the, how the group performed uh, against the broader market last week, right? I mean, because obviously, Farnborough uh, news flow was, was influencing how investors were looking at the group. We had some broader economic numbers come through. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what drove the group.
3: Yeah, it was a good week broadly for the market. The S&P 500 was up about three and a half percent. Uh, the 10 year ended the week uh, around 2.75%. So it's it's hovering below below 3%. Uh, oil pulled back. Oil ended the week below $100 at $95. Fix index, which is a measurement of you know, volatility broadly, um, that was down at 23. And just to remind folks, it's been trading in this range between, call it, below 20s and maybe 30. So it's at the lower end of the range, which it's been. Uh, our group in particular, uh, um, at, at the top of the group of the large caps, Boeing was up 7% on the week. Uh, General Electric, which, which, which I don't cover, but you know, broadly, aircraft engines, it was up 7%. Uh, Airbus uh, was up 2%. Lockheed was up 2%. Northrop was up 6%. Raytheon was up 5%. And Embraer was up 5%. So uh, on average, the group outperformed the S&P, but it was a good, a good week for the market.
0: Uh, And I should point out, right, that there was also positive economic news uh, that uh, came out uh, as well. Um, Sash, give us a sense from a European standpoint, right? Saab and Talos also reported uh, two companies that are regarded as bellwethers uh, in a sense. And obviously, we had some Farmborough news uh, influencing as well. How did the group perform from a European perspective?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, I mean, Ron captured it. I think that what was interesting was that the, the traditional trade for uh, for investors for European air shows has been that you you buy the shares before the air show and typically you can capture all of the performance or enough of the performance by about the end of the Tuesday of the show and therefore you should probably sell uh, about then. And, and what was very interesting about the show was that Although, and we're going to come back to this clearly, there wasn't a huge amount of news flow in terms of several aircraft orders, but the uh, the shares kept you know locked in their performance during the week. So there, there wasn't what you often get, which is you know, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, and definitely on Friday, a sort of a sell-off because all of the good news is in the price, and therefore you might as well sort of uh, you know go go off and do something else with your money. Um, you know, most of the shares had a per- had a perfectly good. Um, week with a you know with a very with a couple of exceptions. So, you know, to talk about the two European uh, stocks that then re- reported Q two numbers this week. Saab um, market took the Saab numbers very badly, not because the numbers were bad. I mean, actually, I think the numbers were you know they were very much as as expected. But again, what we have here is industrial expectations are that the Ukraine war is it, expected to lead to a rapid increase in orders and companies, you know, reporting very rapidly improving numbers, uh, you know, revenue profits. And that's just not realistic. It takes governments months, quarters, and in some cases, years to actually turn their defence policies around. When they do that, it's a multi-year and potentially a decade long upcycle. But to expect companies like Saab to, to show everything turning up after um you know five months of the war in Ukraine was unrealistic um right. but it, it just shows how you know some investors are very very impatient for European defense companies to uh you know to inflect up inflect upwards and when it doesn't happen uh you know some shares were down nine percent at one stage on the uh, on the, the day although they recovered um uh later on and pretty much ended you know ended the week down but only slightly down um that you know that uh, it, it was a very violent uh, reaction. There, Tallis ended the week very slightly down, I and mean, they had a, had a sort of poor Friday. But the results were, you know, generally better. Uh, I think that uh, specifically, you know, we were. were um, there's clearly that you know the space business has started to uh, perform quite well. Order inflow was fantastic. Now you'd expect that they had the their share of the. Um, Rafael order from the UAE. Thales is the biggest single uh, subcontractor partner uh, for uh, for that. But still, you know, Thales had absolutely fantastic defence uh, order intake, uh, a book to bill, even excluding that 1.4 times. So uh, there you'll start, I think they are starting to see uh, some sort of uh, long-term upcycle. Although, the, you know, the book to bill has been good for the last uh, the, the previous two, um, three quarters before then. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's the mark of Thales really having been turned around and having very, very strong, uh, commercial performance under, under Patrice Kane. Um, so in, in a fine sort of way, I think that Saab was more important in terms of being a bellwether for investor sentiment. Thales actually delivered broadly what, what investors want from a European defense stock. Um, Thales shares didn't move very much during the week, but, um, I said Saab was very, very violent.
0: We had a great conversation with Mike uh, Schillhorn, uh, the Airbus uh, Defence and Space uh, Chief Executive, and he said, you know, that the Titan vendor Is real, and there is going to be uh, more money uh, in the pipeline, even if it takes a little bit of time uh, to register. And we also discussed SCAF, and I want to get your views uh, on all of your views on that because we had some news across a lot of combat aviation uh, programs. Uh, Richard, let's, uh, if if it's okay with with you all, to shift uh, to a little bit of a deeper uh, analysis of what we heard uh, during the air show you each of you were kind enough to join us. Byron Callan, our mutual friend uh, of uh, uh, Capital Alpha Partners, also joined us over the course of the week for the daily updates that we were doing. Richard, take take us away in terms of uh, commercial uh, defense, right? I, I want to get into a little bit of a deeper conversation on what you guys, Heard and what it means after you know a couple of days of re- reflection, as opposed to hey the news uh, today. Start start us off, uh, Richard and Ron. Want to get your take and then Sash yours. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, it was great to be in a public place with a bunch of uh, you know friends and industry folks, uh, you know, for
0: the first time in
2: a few years. And I, I think the overall atmosphere and indeed commercial activity was really positive. You know, I mean, I, I, Sash put it in his uh, his note on the show that, and a lot of other people echoed this concern that commercial orders were a bit muted. You know, all told, only about uh, three hundred and change with uh, with Embraer. Uh, I'm going to put a different twist on that. Um, I I think given the fact that backlog stayed largely intact during the worst aviation downturn in history ever, uh, meant that you shouldn't have had such big expectations, that a lot of people had those expectations. I don't think they were realistic. 300 and change, I'll, I'll call it a victory, especially since, remember, at this point in a recovery, Typically, it's the lessors who lead the way. They typically show up on day four and five of air shows and say, oh, by the way, we just got really great terms on another couple hundred of these, a couple hundred of those. And they pump things up to, you know, I remember the records were 800, 900, 1,000. That just wasn't going to happen. You know, lessors are still licking their wounds after, of course, the, the Russia debacle, losing hundreds of jets in, in, uh, in nationalization, uh, piracy, if you will. And uh, not only that, but they're still repairing their balance sheets because of the well rather generous lease holidays that they uh, took part of in during the crisis. So they're not there yet. And all told, I think we had a pretty darn good week, especially if you look at the you know defense order activity. Obviously, you had the check showing up with the F thirty five interest and you know the global eye, and whatever else. It it looked to me commercially and in defense order activity like a really great week uh so i'm going to put an optimistic spin on things there
0: um i i would uh, i would agree with you and it, it was genuinely great after four years of not being at something um you know every, everybody who knows me knows that i love major air shows and Farnborough and paris are really uh, extraordinary from that standpoint um and uh, it, it was just it was just great to be there uh, again, even if the flying was somewhat less muted. And unfortunately, some folks left a little bit early, given uh, the, the strike threat uh, that, that existed there. Uh, Ron, sort of your, your sense after you've had a chance to sort of reflect and digest.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I won't rehash what, kind of what Richard went through, but uh, I think sort of the bigger takeaways for us were on the supply chain. Uh, we met with a lot of suppliers at the show and you know, we kind of had the same questions for everybody. And, and one of the things that came out to us was uh, castings and forgings are going to be a challenge and they're going to be a challenge for a couple of years. Uh, that's, that's clear. Uh, on the front of electronics, electronics don't seem to be getting a heck of a lot better, but the good news is they don't seem to be getting a heck of a lot worse. So as the industry goes to you know, ramp up here uh, over, over this next while, um, the supply chain will remain a challenge, uh, particularly on the metals front. Uh, you know, we've had a lot of incoming questions on that from investors, and that's that's an area where we we focused a lot. Uh, I, another area of the show that I think was uh, you know, was 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 interesting was, I mean, if you go four years ago to the show, last time we were all there, there wasn't really a heck of a lot of discussion on sustainability and environmental impact and so on and so forth. And I guess this show, given that you know we had record you know, record heat in the UK, 100 plus degrees uh, out on the tarmac, and there was a lot of discussion of the show about various schemes for sustainability, SAF, hydrogen, hybrid, uh, this, that, and the other thing. And um, that really does seem to be a theme that is, uh, you know, uh, seeping through the industry and you know, different strategies are emerging. Uh, the one thing that I, I kind of, you know, kind of you know, gives me a little bit of pause. If you think about any aircraft that's going to be delivered, say, in the next five years, it's going to be around probably 25, maybe 30 years from now. Let's call it 25 years from now. So if an airplane gets delivered in, say, 2025, it's going to be around in 2050. Um, so, you know, if you're going to get to net zero carbon by then, really probably the only way you can do it is SAF. But, um, you know, I think that was one of the big differences. And then maybe one other quick thing, uh, and, and I know where Richard stands on this stuff, but there was a presence of, uh, you know, eVTOL aircraft at the show. And, uh, right. you know, if you go four years ago, there was nothing. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, two years from now where, where they are. And, and what's going on with that. So there was a, you know, a, a change of, of technology, uh, I would say, uh, at the show.
0: And, and I should say, right, SAF is uh, thin- synthetic aviation fuels, uh, is, is, is what you mean by that, for those in the audience who may not be. I was going to ask you whether or not, I, I was going to ask all of you whether or not we were just going through the motions uh, on sustainability, and I do think that we have kind of crossed the Rubicon a little bit that, uh, that folks are uh, responding uh, to, um, you know, the folks are, are looking and, and to do something about this in, in, a, in a meaningful fashion somehow, even if uh, the challenge is a big one. Uh, and the sentiment that if the aviation industry does not do better, Nobody wants to be in a position that goes from sort of like six percent of the problem to ten percent of the problem, right? So a lot of folks, uh, talking to whether on or off the record, were saying, "Hey, we need to be seen as part of the solution and not part of the problem." Uh, ultimately, especially as other sectors try to clean up uh, their game. My number one thing is, hey, cryptocurrency consumes more—you know—produces more greenhouse gases actually than aviation does. But uh, anyway, um, Sash, but sort of your takeaways. Broadly, right? I mean, we saw a lot of um, an- announcements, right? Some key ones on uh, combat aircraft and SCAF, where Ben Wallace made some news uh, in-, in front of Parliament. Well, walk us through some of the the bigger muscle movements from your perspective. And if you want to comment on the sustainability part of the equation, uh, go ahead. But I'm sort of interested in also your bigger, broader takeaways.
4: Actually, I you know, one of the things I things um, I'll pick up from Richard, is that it was a very, very balanced show in terms of civil news flow and military news flow. Um, we probably, and I think a lot of investors have got very used to air shows where people come along and order civil aircraft. and the military uh, and the military producers fly military aircraft, but there's very little news flow associated with those aircraft. And actually, here was a news uh, you know an air show where somebody went and ordered f thirty fives to checks. Here was a news flow where I oh, sorry an air show where um, there was a lot of news flow about both the uh, Franco-German-Spanish SCAF and the British-led Tempest programmes, including announcements. And uh, I can't remember a, a Farnborough air show which had such a consistent theme of um, you know, UK defence uh, progress and programme since uh, you know, and aging me, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, when there was a huge rearmament process going on, firstly, after the Falklands and then after the first Gulf War. Um, so that was, you know, that was a really remarkable thing, that to have the, the military news flow at, you know, at least as important, arguably strategically more important uh, than civil. So if we look at the, um, there, there were really two very, very big linked uh, announcements. Uh, from uh, the you know team team Tempest, the UK led program. I mean, the first actually was a, a big upgrade of the RAF's Eurofighters. That was announced that's just before the uh, the show at Riyadh. Uh, new computers, uh, new uh, radars. But the I think the key there is that the radars are intended to be ported over onto Tempest as and when. Uh, the Tempest airframes are available. So, what the UK is buying now is effectively up, they're buying upfront the systems for uh, for Tempest. And that's really smart because that means that Tempest will be a, a spiral upgrade program pretty much from the moment that it rolls out of the uh, out, of the hangar. And then on the, at the show itself, we had the announcement of the Tempest uh, demonstrator, slightly changed uh, time scale. COVID has taken its toll, but should be flying. Uh, Fly, flying 20, in twenty twenty six for um, twenty six twenty seven and hopefully at Thambray showed uh, twenty twenty eight and Japan coming in uh, or at least you know starting to negotiate to come into the program if that happens and you know some people are talking about that being uh, an, a you know decision by the end of the year that gives um, Tempest a you know another anchor uh, country uh, partner. Um, of huge importance, huge significance, and very, very, you know, very significant volumes as well. I mean, you know, Japanese will buy arguably at least as many of these as the UK will. Um, And they have a very, very similar requirement in terms of long-range air-to-air, which is the the driving thing uh, behind Tempest. So I I think that was a a very, very important uh, process. And, you know, as a, not even a sideline, but if you looked at the complexity of the Leonardo flying testbed, for uh, Tempest, front end is like every other flying test bed; they all look great because you know you put a Tempest nose on and lots of lumps and bumps and everything else. But it was then when they said it's the Boeing seven five seven, and the back end of this aircraft will be used for other stuff. Uh, it was an incredibly cryptic comment. My bet will be that the uh, rear, air, you know, the back end uh, after the wing of this seven five seven will be used to test the conformal uh, weapons base. That's going to be terrific technology to. To demonstrate in the in the second half of this decade, uh, and it you know it shows that companies are taking this program very seriously. They're investing up front. We reckon the, the Leonardo demonstrator alone is 100 million sterling off, off their own back. They won't get refunded for that particularly, but that's what what keeps them in the program.
0: Right. Um, let me ask you something that Mike Shulhern, uh said. Uh, you know, when I asked him about Scaf and, uh, some of Eric Trappier's, uh, comments, um, and he said, look, I mean, you know, we, we need to have some sort of we need to have an agreement by the end of the year, uh, at which point I asked, well, look, you've been very successful in your past collaborations with uh, Britain, Spain, and Italy, obviously on the Eurofighter uh, program, as well as on the Tornado program, uh, ultimately. Um, you know, he was noncommittal, but he said you know, it would be important at some point for the company. You know, it, the company would consider its alternatives uh, at that point. How much, how much flexibility is there? Because this is a national agreement. Um, and Airbus is one of the companies that is participating in that national agreement, right? I mean, at this point, we're trying to figure out what the industrial relationship is. Dassault certainly pushing to be uh, in charge. We should note that Dassault also has an ownership stake in Airbus, uh, as it has an ownership stake in Tallis and a number of other companies. But w- walk us through how this unfolds, uh, SASH, uh, because you're one of the people, and, and Richard, you're another one of the people who've said, you know, the, the sense that SCAF becomes a Franco-French program. Well, the Spaniards are part of this. And indeed, depending on who you talk to in Spain and who you talk to in Germany, they sort of express a little bit more interest in working with the Brits and the Italians than they do working uh, with the French. And I don't mean that to be discharitable to Dusso, right? Great company but they also like to be in charge uh, as, as opposed to doing something more broadly um, uh, collaborative, you know, you, your sense on how this unfolds and what the time horizons for it are, because Scaf seems to be falling behind while Tempest is, is actually looks like it's picking up speed actually.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with that last. Um, I think there is a divergence and it is very much in favor of Tempest at the moment, despite the fact that the, uh, the, the flight test demonstrator is, uh, is a bit later than, than people had hoped. Um, end of the year, I think, is the is, is is absolute date. And that was confirmed by Eric Trappier uh, at the company's uh, results press conference uh, this week. He, w- he was very clear as well that, you know, if they can't get it sorted out in the next six months or so, then he will advise France to go the other way. But let's be absolutely clear. This is not a decision that Michael Schulhorn or... Eric Trappier can make. They can only advise their respective governments. They are the representatives of their governments, but they are not the, um, uh, it's not their call. This is a call that gets made at the most senior level in France and Germany. Um, I think that, I'm a, of course Dassault wants to uh, lead SCAF. The part of the debate and part of the, um, uh, the framing of that actually comes in the options that it would like to offer to France for a loan program, a loan program where France just pays for everything up, you know, the whole the whole program. Dassault builds it, and you've got a Franco-French program. And it'll be, you know, clearly a very very good fighter because they you know, they had they generally are. That will not wash, but a um, French-led program that brings in. For example, the United Arab Emirates as a financial investor, where they would uh, co-fund a proportion of the program in return for aircraft at a, um, uh, you know, at a known price, in return for um, uh, you know, preferential uh, delivery uh, timings and so forth. That becomes politically attractive to France and financially attractive to France as well. So I think that, and you know, after the um, UAE uh, Rafale order, that sort of um, mixture of industrial leadership and financial investment from other countries looked much more credible uh, than, than it would have done before. Then there's the question of what happens to Germany and Spain. Um, right. And you're absolutely right, you know, that, that there is a. Uh, a wish across parts of industry to, to get the band back together again. Um, it's not as exciting to um, uh, The problem, I think, is that Germany has proved to be not a very good partner in military aircraft programs, particularly with Typhoon, because until recently, the German government keeps on banning exports to countries that it regards as being um, you know, not, not very moral uh, operators of the equipment. And so the British aircraft industry is fuming at the fact that they haven't been able to export more typhoons to Saudi Arabia because of the war in Yemen. And it was very interesting at the press conference on Monday about Tempest, the um, UK Ministry of Defence lead on Tempest asked, you know, could Germany come back into the programme? So in the flip side of what you were asking, Michael Sherlhorn, said, yeah, they might be welcome. But it was only might. And I have to say, you know, I didn't, feel to us like a ringing endorsement. And right. um, you know, if you have a choice between Germany and Japan, Japan will do what Japan does in the Far East. and um, But Germany can be awkward in terms of exports. I think the UK at the moment would go for Japan. However, the political appeal of breaking, breaking up SCAF and the political appeal of saying actually the UK is part of Europe might just swing it.
0: Richard, your sense on all of this and uh, Ron want to go to you because you've got your hands up uh, hand up as we were uh, having this discussion R- Richard give us give us your sense on all of this and how you perceive it uh, all uh, playing out because you have been skeptical that scaf would remain uh, a French german uh, Spanish program.
2: Yeah. I mean, obviously, I share all of Sasha's concerns, but I really don't have Sasha's sense of diplomacy. So I'll just come out and say it. This is a stupid <laughs> program that was born dead. I mean, the idea is just foolish beyond words for so many different reasons. It will be a Franco-French plane, as you say. The French are famous for cooperating with exactly nobody on combat aircraft. Uh, DASO, I should say Dassault is famous for cooperating well, with Well, that's, that's
0: not entirely true, right? I mean, they did do the Jaguar. Yes, and you
2: still meet very old BAE, British Aerospace folks, who are deeply, deeply angry about the Jaguar and say, we were supposed to sell it as an export combat plane. They took all the leads and sold Mirage F-1s, and we are really mad about that. That is pretty much exactly what they all say. Uh so yeah, I, I, I don't reject
0: that.
2: that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean that, that was just a colossally great illustration. Colossally great. Anyway, a really great illustration of the limits of
0: magnificent. A magnificent
2: illustration. Magnificent illustration. Um and sure enough, they did great with Mirage F1 exports. Now, look at every single French fighter program since the dawn of the Jet Age. It's two-thirds export. Um and the great keys to that great key to that salesmanship, you sell to the UAE and you even sell to Saddam Iraq. You sell to people, and the sales t- tool is you don't have to ask to use th- this plane. You don't have to ask for the keys to use this plane. Now, Germany more and more, well, we'll sell you something, but you have to ask for the keys before you use it. Hence, you know, Sasha's comments about Saudi Yemen. And, and that is not someone you want to be in partnership with, but it's also, you know, I mean, Germany's limited combat aircraft industry bandwidth really begins to weigh along with france's tremendous and shall we say uh, dominant to the point of domineering industrial bandwidth when it comes to combat aircraft in other words yeah dallas is going to get the contract for radar ew everything else stuff left over for Hensel yeah no Snecma safran is going to get the engine stuff left over for mtu Oh, here's a little part of the LP compressor if you're nice to us. Airframe. Yeah, yeah, no, they don't cooperate with anybody on an airframe, not even on their commercial airframes, you know, in terms of major subcontracts, DASO's Falcon Jet unit is nothing like the sort of, you know, open risk sharing partnerships you see at at Gulfstream or Bombardier. So Franco-French all the way, they'll do good with it, with the possible exception. Again, one weak link is they're not quite as good as say Rolls-Royce or GE or Pratt on combat engines, but they'll be good enough. And they'll get to sell it everywhere they want. Um, and then there's the role of Japan on Tempest. I am really intrigued by that for everything that Sash said. You know, I mean, on the one hand, you look, let's look at the geopolitics. Japan has stuck with the US through thick and thin, uh, up to and including, of course, F2, FSX, you know, AKA a- 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 F16, Block 60 minus, or whatever you want to call it for 1991. Um, That was an interesting experiment, but really what Japan wants is something different than where the US is going. They'll get the F-35, they want something faster, more range, and most of all, time to climb. And that concept of operations really fits with the UK RAFs far more. And not only that, the U.S. is heading in the direction of NGAD, which, you know, I mean, how many countries can afford a Nimitz-class carrier? How many countries can afford an NGAD? It's probably the same number of folks. This is all arguing for a tectonic shift in combat aircraft industrial cooperation with Japan moving from the U.S. to quite possibly Britain, and that's really intriguing because, again, as Ash says, the Japanese bring numbers. Now, of course, they also bring the expectation of industrial cooperation, and, you know, BAE doesn't have a lot of experience with them, but they'll find a way. You know, the Brits are pretty good at cross-border cooperation, and ditto for Rolls-Royce. They'll be good at cooperating with IHI and whoever else. Uh, so I, I, I'm intrigued by this, both for geopolitical reasons, for market reasons, for industrial cooperation reasons. It was one really interesting development of the show.
0: I, I, should, I should point out, right, that Japan wanted the F-22 some 15 years ago. The United States uh, did not have any anti-tamper on it, did not particularly want to sell it. The Japanese expressed some interest in, uh, you know, covering some of those costs. Uh, and then it really looked like because of the time to climb uh, and other requirements of uh, uh, the Japanese uh, Air Force, there was a sense that actually the Eurofighter had a very good shot for that high altitude interceptor role. Um, and and then they went with the F-35, uh, seen as a more sort of um, pragmatic strategic cooperation, obviously Japan building uh, aircraft carriers and could use the 35 Bravo from them. But that requirement actually still stays on the books, uh, Richard, right? And hence your point, that it drives a change uh, in uh, broader strategy. um ron, what what's what's your sense? And I also wanted to pick up wanted to see what you were picking up on u s. combat aviation programs, uh, because you know, to talk about the b twenty one as a very, very successful program, had a great conversation with Tom Jones of uh, Northrop's Aeronautics. Uh, system center uh, sector, um, right? B-21 is seen as a model uh, program. A little bit of NGAD uh, discussion. We heard from uh, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall about the importance of making sure that architecturally uh, the new jet the United States develops is interoperable with the jets being developed by all of its closest allies and partners. What, what are some of the, you know, whether on the European program, on the U.S. program, what were some of the things that you picked up over the course of the week?
3: Yeah, I think probably one of the the biggest things that I picked up was uh, F-35 has really cemented itself as the NATO deterrence tactical aircraft of choice, right, Um, on the heels of what the the Czechs did, and I'd expect to see more of that. Uh, What was also interesting, not related to the air show during the week, uh, the next lots of uh, F-35 were announced, and they kind of came in lower than that people were expecting. Um, so, you know, and, and, Lockheed did report earnings during the quarter and they had to kind of had to talk people through how they were going to get to 156 aircraft. Looks like the next three lots, uh, it works out to about 125 aircraft for the U S. Um, and there's some overlap in this and that, but it did come in lower than people were expecting. So there's probably, you know, for sure some room in there for international sales, but there also seems like some skimming came off the top to make room for something else, maybe NGAD, maybe something else. So we'll see. And then I would say on the European side and all the meetings we did at the show, I mean, it's clear that European defense spending is back. It's here. It's a thing. Um, and to Sasha's point earlier, and, and we kind of see this in the U.S. too. This all kind of has to go through the sausage process. Right. I mean, governments take time to allocate money and to get it out of their treasuries into the hands of contractors or whoever else. So um, that, that's going to take a little bit of time. So we'll see how this next earnings period goes, uh, you know, this upcoming week, we're going to see a bunch of U.S. companies report uh, and see how, how all that plays out. Uh, and then maybe, you know, one other one other point I, I might add, this is just a little pivot to commercial that, that I wanted to mention earlier, was one of the things at the show, It's still there's still uncertainty around uh, the 737-10 and, you know, if and when and how it gets certified. And then, and then also on uh, the 787, when it does go back into service, it does seem like most of the people we spoke to were expecting 787 to go back into service and call it five to six weeks from now. But, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, one point that I think is important about 787, even though it's, it's had its delays and it's going to have its issues ramping back up, they haven't seen many cancellations at all. I mean, Very, very few. And I think it's a testament to how popular the aircraft is. So it should do reasonably well, honestly, right when it gets when it gets back into service.
0: Uh, it 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 is a great jet and i think everybody is very eager and it's weird uh you know being out there and 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 looking at ramps and not seeing it out there right so it, it makes it uh, kind of kind of weird um uh, sash uh, uh go ahead because you've got your hand up and then richard uh i know that you uh, have a follow up as well go ahead sash um yeah i
4: i i just wanted to pick up on um what Ron said about, you know, the F-35 becoming the NATO deterrence tactical aircraft of choice. And I think that's a, that's a really good description. If you actually want to, to let's be clear about it. if you want to frighten the Russians about your ability to retaliate, you, you buy an F-35 because an F-35 will get you places in Russian airspace that very few other aircraft will. Um, and, you know, the, 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 the Czechs putting in a request to buy twenty four. Was very very interesting, you know. For that, um, you know, it follows on from the from the Finns recently. The Finns really have a requirement to be able credibly to strike St Petersburg, and you know, at a push, possibly even Moscow. That's what deterrence is about, and it's a um, uh, you know, European countries are beginning to begin to play hardball now on the sort of level of deterrence that they uh, offer to uh, to Russia, um, and. Personally, I think that this is a good thing. Um, the flip side of the uh, Czech decision is that Saab may have lost one of their um, European customers. Right. Uh, the Czech Republic currently operates 14 grippens They lease them from Sweden. It's a government to government relationship. They get them very, very cheap. Uh, and Saab has been keeping them uh, very updated. And I think fa- Saab is feeling a little bit bruised by this. Um, it's possible that over time for you know precisely the reasons that Richard was talking about in terms of, you know, the F thirty five is a strike aircraft. The, the you know the clues in the name that the Czechs may want to keep a uh, a fighter capability as well, although it's a small country, um, that would be a quite a quite a big burden for them. Um, I think Saab will and Sweden will work very very hard not to lose uh, the Czech Republic as a, as an operator. But at the moment, you know, that was a that was a big disappointment, and I think came as quite a surprise. Uh, to Sweden, it just shows the degree to which uh, some countries are making much quicker decisions than we would have expected. Um, uh, in you know, in the light of the invasion of Ukraine,
0: extraordinary revelation, uh, Ron, that the Federal Trade Commission is uh, reopening or or looking at Northrop's acquisition of uh, Orbital ATK. I, that's extremely unusual. I don't recall uh, this ever being done in the past. Walk us through what's being asked and what it potentially means because um, I did spend my time catching up with banker friends of mine that I hadn't seen in person in a long time. And the number one question was whether or not uh, this administration was going to allow any further consolidation. And the sense very much was no, Uh, there's, there's a lot of money. Um, there's potential interest in deals. Obviously, it's a rising tide lifting all boats. So people don't necessarily feel uh, that, they, that it's do or die to do some of these uh, deals. On the other hand, deal activity is very good for shaping portfolios and the like. What, what does this mean and what, what implication does it have on the valuation of the companies in the sector? If the U.S. government is not only rejecting deals as they did in the Booz, Hamil- Booz Allen Hamilton case, as well as um, you know rejecting uh, Lockheed Aerojet, and is now going to investigate past transactions uh, for potential violations, right? And if you've violated your consent decree, you should be punished. But that doesn't necessarily appear to be the case in this. Or, or let's put it this way: it's debatable uh, whether whether that's the case.
3: Yeah, I think if you if you look at it, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, there's not a lot of precedent for the U.S. government going back, FTC going back and looking at um, a deal that closed four years ago uh, and kind of reevaluating it. I think the stem it stems from a lawsuit from Boeing that uh, Northrop dragged their feet uh, during the competition uh, for GBSD. uh, And as a result, they pulled out of that competition. We'll see ultimately where. Where it ends up, you know, my, my guess, and this is just a guess, that the odds of it, you know, of a deal that's been closed for you know a substantial, a material amount of time, undoing it is very unlikely. You know, potentially there's a, a penalty in there in the form of uh, uh, some sort of uh, you know payment that North would have to make, or maybe not. We'll see how it goes. But I think one takeaway is the current administration, for sure, is being much more um, hawkish on anti competition. Uh, rules and so on and so forth. So, so we'll see where it goes. I mean, I mean, ultimately, I, I would be surprised if it becomes something you know, very material. But, uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens.
0: Um, and I should I should point out, right in that case, um, even when the competition was going on, it was more that Boeing wanted to create a national team and mitigate its chances of losing uh, a competition in which Boeing, excuse me, in which Northrop was bidding aggressively right at the time. Uh, I don't recall this in particular being as uh, significant an issue, but hey, you know, if you can leverage your advantage, uh, everybody in this industry will try to do that very quickly. uh, Some more earnings coming out next week, right? We're gonna be hearing from uh, Boeing, we're going to be hearing from Raytheon. We're going to be hearing from Hexel, GD. Uh, what are what what are the expectations uh, from the street? And Richard, I'm going to come to you uh, next. But we're about to lose Ron. Go ahead, uh, uh, Ron. Wrap us up on what to expect from earnings. Northrop is also reporting L3 as well.
3: Yeah, I think a, a, big, a big thing to keep an eye on next week is one on the defense companies. Back to the point that Sash made that, you know, how quickly will this upcycle in defense actually filter through to the results? Um, you know, probably this quarter is too soon, as, as Sash mentioned. That's going to take some time. Um, uh, I, I think investors understand that, but we'll see. I mean, we'll see what happens on results. And then, two, you know, a lot of eyes are going to be on Boeing because Boeing did have some nice headlines at the air show. But now it's all about execution. And, and, and the thing that people are going to focus on on Boeing is their cash flow generation during the quarter and where that sets them up for the rest of the year. I think that's probably going to be probably one of, one of the biggest things. And then with, with Raytheon uh, Technologies, their discussion about uh, the supply chain, the, the, in, in particular with Pratt & Whitney, um, they're behind on engine shipments because of the suppliers. And you know, I think they will set the tone for what other suppliers may say, or at least that'll be the read across from investors.
0: Ron, thanks very much. Uh, bon voyage. And uh, uh, and just letting our audience know, this roundtable will be back next Sunday, even though uh, uh, we are going to be skipping programming next week to give everybody a chance to recharge after what was a very busy uh, farm bro and also the beginning of the holidays, uh, summer travel season. And Ron is evidence of the summer travel season, as is uh, Richard. Uh, bon voyage, uh, Ron. and I look forward to having you back on next week. As always, Vago, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, uh, Richard, uh, thanks very much for your patience. uh, And uh, over over to you on any sort of last thoughts. And I have one quick question uh, to ask uh, both of you. Go ahead, Richard.
2: Yeah. You know, as Ron says, it really does come down to the supply chain. You know, you're selling all these planes, you know, the F-35 classic example, the actual market requirement right now is 180, 190, 200. You know, and every day the paper boy brings more to quote Pink Floyd. You know, it's you make these skyline charts that show, all right, now you add 24 on top of the Swiss, the German, the thin and all the other uh, existing You know, 14 or 15 countries that had want their F 35s, along with, of course, the patiently waiting three US air services. And this week, of course, saw the news that they wouldn't even be able to make 156 next year, um, that this would be put off for another couple of years. Um, (laughs) I had thought that the military side of the industry would be prioritized in terms of, uh, you know, supply chain things being sorted out. Uh, But apparently not. It's a cross-the-board problem. Uh, There is some evidence that the economy is uh, perhaps slowing. Um, Will that free up uh, people and things, as it were? Maybe, I hope, because we're having a real issue here. And, you know, you look uh, on the combat aircraft side, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe Gripen, maybe their strongest argument for one of the remaining sales campaigns, are that uh, you can get it, we can build it, because <laughs> even the right. French are having a hard time, you know, getting to 30 Rafales a year. Um, this is becoming a cross-the-board problem on the commercial side, of course. Continued difficulties. Big news this week, with of course the EU not sanctioning the S M P O. That's probably welcome news for people who need. Titanium castings and forgings probably inevitable. There are still issues with U.S. companies not buying the stuff. They've got their own sanctions in place. Uh, but you know, you got to look at the whole supply chain holistically. So that helps perhaps a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, you've got both Raytheon and GE scores of engines short, and you're hearing stories that the, the airframers. Getting up to where they want to be, especially right. Airbus, with now announcing seventy-five, now definitely pressing ahead with seventy-five. But you have to wonder how many of them are going to be gliders with, uh, you know, lead weights or something underneath the wing holding the aircraft down, waiting patiently for engines, which are waiting patiently for castings and forgings. So moving forward, uh, yeah, exactly right. All about execution.
0: Um, let me ask uh, Sash uh, one last question because we've uh, we've got to go. Um, you know, Mike uh, Scholhorn mentioned, um, you know, I asked him about the costs of Europe weaning itself from Russian uh, titanium, uh, as well as Chinese componentry. And he said, look, there's going to be a cost. We're trying to assess this right now. Has anybody done a good assessment? as far as you're concerned about what it's going to cost folks. I mean, one of the other questions we discussed was energy, right? And oh, the cost that's going to impose on European industry uh, as well. The, you know, at the time we, we talked, uh, Nord Stream 1 was closed. Um, it miraculously reopened. Obviously, Putin is trying to show that he's in charge of energy. So right after the EU, you know, criticized Russia and said, hey, we need an alternate plan. This is part of Putin's whole. Look, I'm not as bad as everybody says he is. You know, I'm more interested in keeping you air conditioned and warm than your leaders are. We we got that. But is there any accurate assessment of what what the costs are of a European industry doing business without Russian components, Russian titanium, Chinese components, and then energy on top of it? Is is there a good estimate on that's a five percent uh, no, uh, premium, 10%? Oh,
4: it's uh, it, look, it's, I think it's probably more in the in the range of five percent than ten percent, but there isn't a good estimate at all, and that's what's so interesting about this. And I was talking to a, um, you know, quite a major European civil aerospace company um, this week, uh, and they said our gas bill, um, which is predominantly for heating buildings and factories, but a little bit is for actually heating metal for doing cool stuff with metal. Um, and they said our gas bill is about 80 million euros, which in the context of a business that is broadly 5 billion euros is de minimis. But the issue is that to switch from Russian-supplied uh, gas through Nord Stream 1 to somebody else's gas, it isn't that you, you have to pay a, well, you probably have to pay 50% more. That doesn't worry people. It's Can you get the damn gas or not? It's, it's incredibly binary. And this winter is going to be very binary indeed. Um, a lot of companies are pinning their hopes on being, um, uh, you know, getting preferential access, defense companies in particular have all started lobbying governments, especially in, um, you know, Germany and the rest of Europe, to make sure that they get uh, preferential access to gas because they are defense companies. And frankly, if I were them, I would do that too. I think that's an entirely uh, reasonable bit, uh, bit of lobbying to do. But you know, the issue there is not the financial cost; it's that it's really hard to know where you where you're going to source this stuff from. Um, componentry. Titanium, I think that's the that's the other issue. It's um, somebody else's titanium will cost more because the Russians, I think, very cleverly kept their pricing keen to make sure that they got a big market share. It's that it's going to take you two years to re-qualify whoever your new source is, whether it's American, whether it's Japanese, whether it's somebody else. Most interesting thing I saw from a, um, a titanium point of view this week, at the back of the BAE um, well stand, you know, massive hall, uh, where they were um, uh, demonstrating what they call their factory for the fu- for the future, uh, for hopefully producing Tempest. They have a a system for doing additive uh, production of titanium parts, where they take uh, titanium wire, which is a hell of a lot easier to source than titanium forgings or castings. Titanium wire, they um, Uh, you know, effective, you know, they they use anti manufacturing to to put it in the shape, the rough shape that they require on a bit of titanium slab, and then they machine that away and they get uh, a component that is identical functionally uh, to a forging. All of that gets done in a very small little bit of uh, BA's factory of the future, and no uh, no Russians are involved, except, you know, where they supply the wire, and I think titanium wire is easier to source. and no casting co- company or forging company is required either. I think the casting companies, you know, should watch it because that sort of advocacy of manufacturing could well uh, take them out of the game for some military aircraft requirements. And uh, the military aircraft guys will do that without, you know, batting an eye.
0: Uh, And I should uh, point out, right, there is an enormous amount of activity that's going to put pressure on those kinds of suppliers. You know, I remember uh, talking to uh, the GM engineering folks and the kind of things they're doing on printable composites is potentially game changing, right? I mean, now you can't print a car hood or some other automotive uh, components, whereas they're getting uh, close to being able to do that kind of thing roughly about a year away. Uh, if if memory serves correctly, uh, in which case that does have some uh, game changing attributes to it. R- Richard, we have exactly one minute, and you want to talk about ESG and EV tall, uh, and I may have that backwards, but whatever it is you want to say, go ahead. You have a minute to say it.
2: Okay. Well, just one last theme from the show. I think Ron alluded to before the whole ESG theme it was really interesting you know, eVTOL being kind of a joke to me and more about recarbonization than decarbonization, but that's a longer story. SAF being very interesting, but ultimately out of our hands in the hands of biology and chemistry people and I wish them all the best and we hope to be adapters in this industry because that's our great hope but on top of that it was interesting to see there are people out there mooting ideas for turboprops you know adapting turboprops replacing some all-jet regional fleets with turboprops that gives you a double-digit fuel improvement let's see more of this let's see it actually happen for the first time in quite a while similarly the announcement that GE saffron's rise uh prop van will be tested on an a380 so putting something bad into good purpose I'm, I'm all in favor of that um that's intriguing too in other words there's lots of decarbonization and esg concepts that were not uh electrified and to me frankly kind of useless being mooted at the show that's very welcome i'd love to see even more at the next show
0: everybody thanks very much for joining us sash uh richard it was great seeing you last week uh and i hope that it's not that long uh before we see each other again especially you uh sash uh and um thanks very much have a great uh, day have a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week as we get to somewhat more regular order thanks again thanks very much it was a a great week thank you
2: it really was great to see you great to see max great to hang out and uh, no matter where i am in the world it's Great to have this show as a great centerpiece of my week.
0: Uh, Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it.